EU Confidential gets started right after this short message. Today's episode is presented by SQM. At SQM, we use scientist-led close digital monitoring of the local environment and collaboration with global sustainability experts to keep our lithium extraction processes sustainable. A presidency has an important role to play on current rule of law files because at such a crucial moment as we collectively prepare and finance our recovery, trust is our most valuable asset. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen with some words of welcome and more subtly also a few words of warning for Slovenian Prime Minister Janis Jansha as his government takes over the rotating presidency of the Council of the EU. Jansha is, to put it mildly, a controversial figure and we'll get into how he and the rest of the EU are going to get along over the next six months in just a moment with our podcast panel. We'll also discuss how Russia managed to get France fizzing over champagne. And later in the podcast, you'll hear from Maritza Schake, former Dutch politician who spent a decade in the European Parliament trying to regulate big tech companies before giving up that career and moving to the United States. She has a new vantage point now, but she's still very focused on the power of technology and how politicians should handle it. But first, let's get to that podcast panel. So it's a warm welcome back to Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. And to Chief Brussels Correspondent David Herzenhorn. Hi, David. Hey there. So uh, a couple of topics at least to uh, discuss this week, and I thought we might start with the Slovenian presidency of the Council of the EU. This is quite a strange thing. Actually, we get used to it in Brussels, but it's this um, period where each country, each member country basically takes a six-month stint at being kind of a neutral arbiter. They're meant to kind of set aside their national interests and be the person, the body that works together to advance what they call here files, you know, various topics, pieces of legislation, get a compromise, get a position among the, the 27 member governments, then they take that position into negotiations with the other EU institutions to actually get things done, get legislation passed. So, it's a very interesting thing, and it's particularly interesting now that Slovenia, one of the EU's uh, smaller member countries, has taken over. And it's particularly interesting also because the Prime Minister of Slovenia, Janis Jansha, is not, if you like, an easy fit with some of the other EU institutions. He has come under fire, under criticism from um, many members of the EU political mainstream, particularly for his attitude to press freedom, his attacks on journalists, accusations that he is affecting the media landscape in Slovenia in various ways, including by withholding funding from media outlets, state media outlets, in particular the news agency there. We should say that uh, he takes a different view and expresses it in very forthright terms on Twitter. So that by way of introduction, uh, David, you were in Slovenia recently for the start of the presidency and a kind of return to normal, right, in the sense that normally at the start of these presidencies, the European Commission kind of goes en masse or the College of Commissioners go en masse to the country that is uh, taking over the presidency. They have various days of meetings and journalists go along too. So if you can summarise, it seemed to me like it was a pretty eventful trip. 
Uh, what were your main takeaways from your trip to Slovenia? Uh, well, as you say, Andrew, Janša is a is a weird fit, and his government as well. And so, what you know normally is a great celebration of this passing of the baton, if you will, became kind of a shouting match at points. Uh, Janša sort of picking at old gripes, showing a picture at the end of his meeting with the College of Commissioners of judges from his country with some social democrats, his political rivals kind of alleging that there's you know corruption in the judiciary on the part of his political opposition. That led to Franz Timmermans, the first vice president of the commission, refusing to be in the group photo. Uh, that sounds kind of childish maybe, but clearly it's a pent-up frustration over some of these unorthodox views of Yancha, who fashions himself as kind of a mini Trump or uh, a mini Viktor Orban or some combination of the two. You know, Actually, it is a weird ritual, but I'm a fan of the rotating presidency in the sense that it does make the Brussels bubble a little less bubbly. I mean, every six months, a government, a national government comes in and brings some of its own sensibilities. And the Slovenians have some priorities like enlargement into the Western Balkans, kicking up the uh, negotiations for membership with Albania, North Macedonia to start with. But instead, uh, Janša and his uh, ministers were sort of picking fights with all three of the EU institutions. You know, he's got a running battle with the parliament where he refused at one point to appear about uh, in a fight over media freedoms. Then he appeared but wanted to show a video and then he backed out. Uh, Then in the European Council where there was discussion over gay rights and he was siding with Viktor Orban about that. And then that's this latest row with the commission. Quite strange indeed. Yeah. And how do you, what's your sense of how the EU institutions, people like European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and others are going to try and and play this? Because this is a dilemma for them. On the one hand, they have to find a kind of working relationship with the council presidency to get things done. On the other hand, they are under pressure and may feel themselves that they want to criticise Jansha in some cases quite strongly. How are they trying to play it? What did you see from your trip? So as as you said, Andrew, the phrase that's often used is honest broker. The presidency is expected to put aside its own positions, its national positions as it negotiates and helps to negotiate among the 27 member states. So it seems they're trying to find a balance and walk this tightrope where on the one hand, you know, she came out at a press conference in Slovenia criticizing him on uh, rule of law, media freedoms, other issues, very sort of sharp language. Trust is our most valuable asset. Trust in solid institutions, trust in independent and efficient judicial system, trust in free and independent and properly funded media, trust that freedom of expression, diversity and equality are always respected, and that the rule of law and European values are always upheld. This is the very essence of our European Union. This is how we earn the respect of the global community. And this is the key to recovering and living together as a union. And to be very clear, political dialogue requires respect for all democratic political parties. The Slovenian presidency will be decisive. But in private, we hear she was a bunch softer. Then in uh, Strasbourg at the Parliament Plenary this week, uh, they tried to dial down the temperature and not bring that up in the uh, debate over the Slovenian presidency to focus on the files, as you say, that they're going to have to work on. So they're trying to walk this tightrope, but it's just not easy because 
Yancha himself, you know, he's a tweeter, an aggressive tweeter. He's got ministers who sort of pop off every once in a while. And so you just don't know what to predict. Uh, she tried, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, to kind of throw a, a little bit of a signal, quoting one of his historic political rivals in her remarks in parliament, just a way of saying, look, I'm, I'm wise to this guy, but I'm not going to escalate this fight further. Yeah, that was quite an interesting sort of subtle thing where she was referring to a historic figure, really, the first kind of post-independence president of Slovenia. But he is, Jansa is also, uh, to be completely fair to him, a historic figure, very much involved in uh, the dawn of Slovenian independence. And he was a rival of uh, President Kuchan, uh, who was quoted there. So, yeah, there's lots of kind of subtext at play here. Reem, I wonder how much the threat, because one of the other things about one of the features of the presidency is that you have a kind of trio that normally forms between the immediate past president, the current president, and the future president. So there's a kind of continuity there. Do you have any sense of of how closely France is trying to work with the Slovenians and what they make of them as they prepare for their own presidency, which is going to be very high profile, start of January, which will be, it will overlap with Emmanuel Macron's assumed run for re-election, although he hasn't declared yet. So that's a big presidency. It's very important for France. How are they dealing with, uh, you know, having to take over from the Slovenians and kind of coordinate with them? The French are very much already focused on their own uh, presidency. As you said, it's going to be extremely high, high stakes. As you know, Macron was uh, sort of the presidential candidate in 2017 that uh, wagered big on being pro-European. He will continue to do that. That is going to continue being a very important set piece of his program when he uh, announces, and we're not expecting him to announce his presidential run until February at the very earliest. But what French officials tell me is that they are very keen for the Slovenian presidency to be a successful one, because that helps their presidency to also sort of build on what the previous presidency has done. So they are trying to be cooperative. Of course, these are very, very early days of the Slovenian presidency. I do get the sense, though, that kind of expectations are slightly lower. You know, these smaller countries, of course, perhaps don't have the same kind of infrastructure, institutional capacity to kind of push through very elaborate agendas say, compared to a German presidency, for example. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is quite striking. I mean, um, our experience, I think, with a lot of Slovenian officials here in Brussels is they're very well informed, they're on top of their dossiers. But yeah, you're asking um, a small nation with limited uh, resources to basically steer this ship of hundreds of millions of people. And yeah, we have the contrast of the German presidency not long ago, which can obviously bring to bear lots of experts from big ministries and, you know, all across government to say, okay, just focus on the presidency and that can make a real difference. So it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out, because as you say, Reem, of course, if they don't get certain things done, and we're talking about technical files, everything to do with, you know, health policy, artificial intelligence, those things roll over to the next president. And I suspect that Manuel Macron does not want to be dealing with the nitty gritty of a lot of that stuff on top of everything else that is going to happen in the next six months. And it's funny, Andrew, on this trip, journalists were already remarking on how differently the Slovenian presidency and its ministers are interacting with reporters compared to the German presidency. And there, it's just a function of Germany's influence. Germany, knowing it has the muscle to push through its priorities, essentially, they can whisper about who's an obstacle in their way, whereas Slovenia really has to walk a careful line because it just can't do that, right? It has to rely on consensus because it's not going to force its uh, ultimate goal through. 
Right. Not all presidencies are created equal, that's for sure. I think we we have seen a couple of examples of, of smaller countries who I think, you know, would generally get good marks. And I think one of the ways that they do that is particularly by focusing on one or two topics and really making those your priority. It's interesting. I think, David, you and I were in Sofia a few years ago when the Bulgarians had the presidency, also made the Western Balkans something of a priority. With some success, I would say, they put it back on the agenda and, you know, perhaps performed a little bit above expectations. So I guess there is scope for smaller countries to still, you know, make a success of it. But I think you probably have to, you know, you have to pick your fights pretty carefully. Let's leave that there and uh, move on, Reem, to, well, actually a subject that uh, I know both you and David are fond of, which is relations with Russia. And uh, we had a, you know, a quite, in one level, a quite fun development this week and in other uh, ways, you know, possibly quite telling uh, on a deeper level. Reem, I don't know if you want to try and summarise the great champagne spat of 2021. <laughs> it is the great champagne spat. And I have to say from the French perspective, it is really below the belt, really <laughs> below the belt, especially since uh, sort of it came after Emmanuel Macron once again, this time at least with the participation of the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, uh, tried just at the last European Council summit to say once more that, you know, there should be a summit uh, between Russia and European leaders and trying once more to launch this dialogue that has clearly been just sterile and led absolutely nowhere over the past few years. And so Putin, you know, as lovely as he is, perhaps tried to repay him by literally the week after that, uh, sort of having Russian officials come out and say, that champagne we've all been drinking? Well, it's not the real champagne from France. The real champagne is the one that comes from Russia. And actually, the French champagne, you know, named after the area, the region, Champagne, should be called sort of bubbly wine or something like that. And what was, I think, you know, beyond what intergalactic trolling that is, really, what I think that revealed is just how lopsided the power dynamic is between Russia and France, Russia and the European Union. Because, you know, that very day or the day after, Macron was on the phone with Putin to discuss other issues, and he didn't even raise the issue of champagne. And in fact, Elysee officials have declined to comment on it and have sort of steered us back to the foreign ministry to try to keep it at a lower level. But we all know that this is something that really strikes at the heart of the French. We'll remember when former US President Donald Trump imposed tariffs on wine, that became a huge diplomatic issue. Right, it can because it does. It was one of those issues again that really cuts through. Right, again, it's one of these. There's a lot of these kind of very technical trade disputes that, you know, don't break through to the broader public. If you like, this one really does. It get, got a lot of attention, and it felt like a kind of double troll, right? Because you get to troll the French by saying, well, from now on, what's going to be called champagne is the stuff we make in Russia, and the stuff that you make that's not champagne anymore. And of course, this also gets at what one of the things that the European Union thinks of as one of its great successes. These geographical indications where they basically say, you know, only feta cheese made in Greece can be called feta or, or whatever. And this, uh, you know, is very powerful in terms of uh, marketing value for products all around the world to say, basically, if you do a trade deal with us, then only our stuff gets to get called feta, halloumi, champagne, whatever it may be. So you also get to take a little tweak at uh, the EU's kind of one of its kind of pride and joys, if you like. David, what did you make of it? 
But there's just an absurd aspect to this, yeah. right? Which we all know that no Russian with any taste or taste buds, for that matter, is going to choose the sparkling Russian wine with names like Horsehead Blanc de Blanc <laughs> over Moet Chandon or Dom Perignon. I mean, come on, the Russians, you know, some of them have quite fine tastes and they love things like French champagne. And yeah. when Putin did counter sanctions to block a lot of EU foodstuffs after uh, Crimea was invaded and next and the EU imposed sanctions in 2014, one thing he never blocked was alcohol or wine imports, knowing his voters would object to that. Of course, as you point out, there is a serious aspect of this, which is the geographic indicators. Those protections are a very serious thing for the EU. And the pointed message from Putin and the Kremlin is, look, your regulation, your rules that you prize so much don't apply to Russia. And that has potentially very, very broad implications in all sorts of other policy areas where Brussels hopes to be the global standard setter, whether it's on digital or climate or trade or anything else, sort of thing. You make whatever rules you want, but unless you agree something with us, they don't apply over here. Now, of course, at the same time, it's just so silly, right? There's nobody's going to pick up the Russian domestic sparkling wine or think that's the real champagne. You know, they will eat the Russian caviar. Sure, fine. Goes very well with French champagne. But, you know, come on, uh, Putin, it's just not a serious threat there. Do you think, it, I mean, obviously we can't know, but do you think, you know, you, you spent a long time in Russia, you know Russia well. Do you think this was out of the blue or do you think it was a deliberate little tweak after the attempt at the overture and the Biden summit? Uh, you know, was this an attempt, a little attempt to kind of divide and rule a little bit to start messing with the Europeans? Yeah, it's clearly a poke, right? I mean, it's clearly just a poke, you know, in the eye because they had this very consequential European Council summit. We didn't expect Russia to be as contentious a subject as it was. And rather than the leaders getting behind a German-French proposal for offering Putin a summit and trying to warm up relations a bit. They actually pushed back uh, some of the countries, the Baltics, Poland, very hard, and they got conclusions that were as tough as we've ever seen, maybe by the EU on Russia, setting some very clear standards and requirements for Putin to meet before diplomatic ties might return to normal. And so there you see clearly this was a way of slapping back and picking something that, you know, he knows hits a nerve. And at the same time, he may be overplaying his hand. Um, you know, then there is a serious fight there about whether, in fact, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, has talked about how the denying themselves Italian Parmesan cheese is somehow patriotic. And even some very serious Russian journalists who, you know, aren't anti-government at all have pushed back on him and said, wait a minute, you know, just making your quality of life worse for your citizens doesn't advance anything. So we'll see if uh, sales pick up of uh, Russian champagne, champanskoya, as they would say <laughs> in Russian, or if there are any drop off in sales by uh, a Vuv Clicquot, but I doubt it. I think we're going to see uh, no, no big shift in market share there. But Putin does this. Yeah. Right? Yeah, but um, I have to say, normally I'm always I'm glad this is audio. I enjoy the fact this is a podcast. But Reem's facial expressions when we were discussing the, the uh, Russian champagne, uh, you know, they would have been worth seeing for our <laughs> listeners. And um, we actually, I think, we'll call it quits there because Reem has a dinner to go to where I hope they will be serving the finest, well, Russian or French champagne, whatever you may prefer. Um, I, I hasten to add, it is a working dinner. Okay. Thank I'm, you very I'm like, much. Well, I'm, I'm sure they would still, <laughs> hope they would still serve something uh, nice as a refreshment. Great. We will leave it there. Reem, David, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. A message from SQM. SQM is an environmentally conscious lithium extraction company operating globally. 
Through a complex combination of data tracking and monitoring, as well as input from our team of highly skilled scientists and geologists, we can measure our impact on the local environment and community. Working closely with the UN-approved Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance, IRMA, we are confident our operations will comply with ESG standards and due diligence requirements the EU is contemplating regarding the supply chain for sustainable batteries. Our sustainable lithium supply will help the continent's manufacturers capture the demand created by the decarbonization of the automotive sector. And now it's time for our feature interview. Earlier this week, our senior policy reporter, Laurence Cerulus, caught up with Maritza Schaka. Over the last decade, Schaka became well-known here in Brussels as a member of the European Parliament, where she specialised in all things digital. But in 2019, she left the EU bubble behind and moved west to Stanford University in California as the International Policy Director of the Cyber Policy Centre. Where are you joining us from? Where have you been based and how have you been spending the last months during the pandemic? So believe it or not, I'm still in Amsterdam. I had just moved to Stanford uh, at the end of 2019. I was all settled there, found this cute little house and was very happy to bike to campus every day. And then COVID hit. And um, I thought it would take longer before you know international traffic would start up again. So I decided to go closer to my parents, who are not the youngest anymore. But even if I thought this may take long, I did not expect that, you know, this much longer over over a year and three months later, I would still be in Europe. But that's how it is. But you're biking in Amsterdam. So biking in San Francisco, uh, not for now, but biking in Amsterdam, that's that's you're still doing that. Always biking, always biking. That's right. That's great. And so you moved to San Francisco, essentially moving outside of the Brussels bubble and trying to take, I guess, what is a more global perspective on tech regulation. How has that been working out? Well, I was very curious about the politics of Silicon Valley. You know, I was very focused among other topics on tech regulation and how we could make sure that certain core principles like democratic values, but also the rule of law and protection of people's well-being was not going to be disrupted through technology. And in Europe, I think there's broader and longer standing awareness that there's not only upsides and shiny objects that come out of Silicon Valley, but that there's also new risks and unfortunately also quite a few harms that come along with these disruptive systems. And so I was curious to understand better what drives people in Silicon Valley and what change might come from. And I felt that where the Brussels hub is, you know, closely scrutinized from a a checks and balances and political point of view, Silicon Valley is not. You're known as sort of a critic of the big tech companies, but a lot of these companies that we talk about when we talk about regulating internet companies and services, they are actually American. So I was wondering, are people seeing you as sort of the outside, the European critic coming in to criticize your uh, American companies in the US? Or do you feel this criticism has actually spread and there is a growing American side uh, or a growing American criticism of these technologies as well? You know, it's funny that you should say that I'm known as a tech critic, because if you would have interviewed me maybe eight years ago, people would have said, well, you're one of the members of European Parliament that's most excited about technology. (laughs) And so perhaps it is the world that has changed as well, you know, uh, where there was more trust and excitement about what could be achieved also by companies. Uh, There's a lot of disillusion now and a lot of uh, disappointment about the amount of lies and cynicism 
that we've seen from ever, ever larger companies that have said a lot about, you know, human rights and freedoms, but that have really not embraced them. And so when I first came to Stanford, maybe that was a little bit my experience too, that it seemed like a more lonely voice making the case for regulating in the interest of, you know, democratic resilience and making sure that uh, all these innovations would not disrupt the very core of our free and open societies. But even in, in less than a year and a half, I feel like a lot has changed in the United States and, and sometimes because of very sad reasons. I mean, for a lot of people, it took the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th to really appreciate the harms of all the conspiracy theories and the lies and the disinformation that was going viral online. But also the the antitrust cases that have been opened, the concerns about the lack of innovation, the lack of fairness in the economy, and this whole winners-take-all effect of big tech is certainly something that I think is gaining support in the United States. There is a growing awareness that the status quo is unacceptable and that there's too much harm coming from these business models that are under-regulated and unregulated at times. I want to look forward a little bit because the US and the EU recently launched uh, what's called the EU-US Trade and Technology Council. And this is a group where Europe and America will work together on tech regulation in ways that will either have tech regulated the same way on either sides of the Atlantic or just do it together. And I was wondering, uh, Maritia, if you could give us your thought on where they should start. If you had to pick sort of one topic or one regulation that you say – Here's this is low hanging fruit. This is where Europe and the US already agree. Let's just do this. What would it be? Well, first of all, what a difference a year makes, right? I mean, what a what a transatlantic festival it was in, in Brussels after such a cold period of time. Hmm. Where to start? I mean, unfortunately, the list is very, very long, and the need for democratic countries to work together is very, very great. Uh, in light of both this whole uh, privatized governance and authoritarian governance that's competing and, and pressuring democracies. At the end of the day, a lot comes together in data governance. And I think that if the EU and the US can uh, work out a data governance model, it would have implications for data protection. It would have implications for cybersecurity. Uh, it would have implications for artificial intelligence, of course, and for standards. So it kind of depends on how you package it, but I think data governance is really something to uh, to focus on, which would have ripple effects into all kinds of other areas, from from trade to security to human rights to uh, AI development. Do you agree with I think what is the predominant position in the U.S. that the U.S. and Europe essentially should band together, especially when looking at China and we're looking at the rise that China is taking on technology? Is this the right approach, or does Europe have a little bit of a different position there? Oh, Europeans certainly have a dif different position, but Europeans also don't agree on this, which is part of their own problem, right? How uh, the 27 have a hard time agreeing. So, yes, in the U.S., banding uh, together vis-a-vis -vis the threats coming out of China is a very strong driver. It even brought Democrats and Republicans together where they were deeply divided about uh, anything else. In Europe... I do believe that there is a need to understand what is happening in China more clearly. I think for all the benefits of the transatlantic relation, it's been very dominant. And there's been a reluctance to look towards Asia more broadly, which uh, there's a lot happening there that's relevant that is also beyond China. So I'm not a big fan of singling out 
one country, but I am in favor of looking at which interests and which governance model, democracy, we share between large number of nations, thankfully, and how we can actually apply those democratic governance principles to the new world that includes technology in almost every aspect of people's lives, the economy. And there, it is helpful as a context, as a perspective, to see how forceful of an alternative there is from authoritarian states, how that is exported, for example, also to the African continent where the EU could offer an attractive alternative. So there is a lot that needs to be done. But I would say try to look at what an enabling set of conditions looks like to preserve democracy and the rule of law when it comes to governing technology and do not sort of you know, pinpoint one country as a, a sort of enemy uh, because it's actually more complex than that. And it's important to also widen the circle of democratic countries to work together. And so looking just at the US or just at China is, is limiting the view too much. And if I can ask, because Europe has a very active agenda to get China on board, for instance, on fighting climate change. This is one of the main objectives right now, because there is a realization that you kind of need China to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. But I guess you can say the same about cybersecurity. You kind of need China to solve that problem as well, together with the rest of the world to fix cybersecurity and to stop sort of cyber attacks, uh, whether it be espionage campaigns or the ransomware attacks that we've seen or other types of attacks. Do you think there's common ground between Europe and China on this? Well, in words, there is. I think it's most important to establish trust and verification beyond just promises, right? One of the big challenges is that it's very hard to independently verify beautiful claims of cooperation and treatment of anything from the environment to people. And unfortunately, we know too many instances where those words did not have any relation to the reality. So it's important to have verification methods. Having said that, many mature relationships between countries consist of both items on the agenda where there is alignment and when there, where there could be huge divergence. And so the idea that you know there's only room for either collaboration or competition is, uh, I think, uh, unrealistic. So I think the EU would do well to have a comprehensive strategy about what it needs to make sure that its interests and values are, are best defended. And certainly that's hard to realize when there's fragmentation within. And so the instances where, you know, no statement against human rights violations in China could be adopted because one country didn't want to support it or where individual countries joined the Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, that is hugely harmful for any kind of agenda, whether it's a critical or constructive one. You really need to form a bloc politically, economically. And so the China strategy really also uh, has some homework that has to happen within the EU. Thank you, Marice, for taking time to have this conversation. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks to Lawrence for bringing us that conversation. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to follow or subscribe to the podcast so you get all of our episodes automatically in your feed. And if you have ideas for guests or topics or general feedback, you can always send us an email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening.